This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks straight from the stages of the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. With a resume that includes coining the term third-wave feminism and is filled in by multiple memoirs, essay collections and a novel, Rebecca Walker's career is a force of intellectual, intersectional thought. At All About Women 2018, she and I had a conversation about beauty as it relates to society, history and to ourselves. And she threw down a super interesting challenge. How do we rethink beauty so that it becomes an act of resistance? Thank you, Edwina. It's such a wonderful um, moment to be here finally. It's been a long journey to get to here. (laughs) All the way from LA and even before that, uh, talking and planning and thinking about what would be helpful to discuss today. So I'm so happy to see you and, um, and to know that you've chosen to take this little bit of time out of your very busy lives to talk about the importance of beauty and the importance of resistance um, and just to be together, you know, in this moment in which uh, togetherness is often so hard to manage, you know, and in which sometimes coming together is actually a frightening event as, you know, we've just been suffering in the United States with multiple mass shootings and so on. And so there's a kind of heightened um, intensity around coming together. And so from where I'm standing, coming together alone itself is an act of resistance, refusing to be um, uh, isolated, refusing to be afraid of, of, of claiming our space in the world. So thank you so much for coming. Um, I usually start my talks by... Um, remembering and honoring one of my mentors, Bell Hooks. Do you all know Bell Hooks? Wonderful cultural critic. You should know Bell Hooks. Please try to read her work if you can. Um, And she calls the lectern the patriarchal pulpit (laughs) because of the relationship that it establishes between the person speaking and all of the people being spoken to. This idea that I'm the one with the knowledge and you all don't have the knowledge and I'm the interlocutor between this sort of platonic ideal or God and that, you know, you are below. And in fact, we know for sure that that's not true. And we're actually all here today together to learn from each other and to build community um, together, separate from hierarchy and separate from sort of coded um, objects in the built environment like this one. Now, I would ordinarily or sometimes step from behind the patriarchal pulpit to kind of make that even more real. Um, Unfortunately, the patriarchal pulpit is often very uh, functional. (laughs) And so I actually need to use it for um, holding up my iPad so that I can read to you. Um, But when we have our conversation, Edwina and I will will both be uh, uh, outside of the phallic shield here. And, uh, and, and then we will, you will feel the difference. You will know the difference, yeah? How are you all doing? Good, you're having a great day so far? It's an amazing gathering, yeah? It's an amazing moment in history. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about beauty. Beauty as resistance. And I called this talk, Beauty as Resistance, Finding Wholeness in the Storm. Um, I'd like for you all, as I'm... As I'm as I'm talking, to, to both listen to me, <laughs> if, 
you can. <laughs> this is not to distract you. This is for the ADD people in the audience, perhaps. But to, to listen, but also to try to remember your first experience of beauty, okay? Your, 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 the first moment when you had um, a kind of holistic moment of, of experiencing something that was transcendent and that you identified with beauty. My first memory of beauty comes from deep childhood. I was four or five and feverish, sick to my stomach, ill. My mother kept me home from school, and before she went to work in her study, laid me down on the sofa in our living room, positioning me just so in the sun so that my body was bathed in it. She covered me with a colorful quilt my grandmother made when she was a young woman, bright strips of color assembled into a star pattern, all the pieces of her life sewn together into the softest cocoon. My mother gave me a cup of honey and lemon tea. The mug was made by hand from the mud of the banks of the Mississippi River. And as I slid my fingers around it, I could feel the energy of the artist in the mottled surface and ridges unsmoothed on the pottery wheel. I felt the act of creation. When I lifted the cup to my lips, the tangy sweet of the tea was a revelation. My mother had made for me a most magical elixir, a potent alchemical tonic rich with the fruits of the earth and the careful discernment of a mother's love. By the time she left me to attend to her typewriter, I was safely at the center of an extraordinary tableau. She had assembled the elements and created an aesthetic moment, a snapshot of pure beauty intended to heal my sick body and restless mind. She had used the tools at her disposal, nature, color, temperature, family, wisdom, to support my body as it warded off whatever was attempting to rob it of vitality, optimism, and power. My mother had, at that moment, used beauty to resist. And she taught me in that moment and many others as I grew up, through her actions, through her intention, through her careful curation of objects and marshalling of elements, how to do the same. She taught me what I could turn to in moments of fatigue and despair, what to surround myself with to keep my mind and body strong, resilient, calm. She taught me that beauty is a weapon, a tool, that when true beauty is summoned, we are rewarded with a feeling of safety and well-being. We are granted a reprieve from confusion. We are ushered into peace. Because isn't that what is so often taken away by a culture that devalues us? The feeling of safety, of peace, of hope, of self-acceptance. The war being waged against us is psychological, it is physical, it is emotional, it is spiritual. And because all of those things are often so impacted and understood through our senses, this war being waged is also aesthetic. We have to look no further than the millions of people grappling valiantly with depression, the billions of women raped and trafficked, degraded and abused, the billions of men and families tortured, imprisoned, displaced, their children left to fend for themselves in a world that wants them only for what they can contribute to the bottom line. 
We don't have to look any further than the endless stretches of strip malls along our roads where verdant earth used to stand, ready to feed us. No further than the hollow remains of a city, a village, a field, after the fighter planes have dropped their cargo. What remains is the opposite of beauty. What remains is devoid of beauty. What remains is the absence of that which uplifts, brings hope, inspires, surprises, delights, heals. What is left is monochrome, acrid, misshapen, disorganized, haphazard, an inescapable, nonsensical, hideous maze. There is no delightful pattern left drawn from the stars, no sophisticated use of color and pattern, no sign of the artist's hand, no sign of the will to create, no sign of medicinal herbs and intimate relationships with animals and insects. There is no warmth, no peace, and there is certainly in those scarred, hollow places, there is certainly no presence of a mother's love. This is because the war against women and the war against true, life-sustaining beauty are inextricably connected. For people who want to control, to own, to rob the masses of humanity of our will to live, this would have to be so, wouldn't it? What better way to weaken and demoralize? What better way to oppress and depress? Raise beauty, leave nothing. Which means that we understand that protecting and cultivating beauty, as I have tried to define it here, is essential to our survival. To recognize and embrace and defend true, life-sustaining beauty everywhere, in our bodies and minds, in our food and friendships, in our homes and communities, is to resist our own annihilation. It is to resist being broken, ill, defeated, It is to continue to believe that beauty matters and that with its help we can be brought back from the sickbed, we can be strengthened, fortified, healed. We can, in fact, win. And so the question, of course, is how to do this work, right? How to recognize beauty, how to define beauty, how to cultivate beauty. I think this is much easier and more difficult than we imagine. It is easier because I believe that human beings have a natural inclination, I would even go so far as to call it a biological imperative, to seek and create and perhaps even worship beauty. We have an innate love of the mountains and the sea, an unbidden drive to create aesthetically rich works that inspire and sustain. We find, when we free ourselves from what we have been told is beautiful, that we have the wisdom to love and respect the people and objects that bring us joy. Our minds are pleased to encounter ideas that bring us peace and equanimity. We are hardwired, then, for beauty. If we were not, we would have settled for destruction long ago. We would have stopped trying to save this earth. We would have succumbed to the forces trying to rip beauty from us, blade by blade, being by being. But we have not. Right? We haven't. We keep fighting. And so I think it is not as hard as we think to recognize and cultivate beauty. What is hard is disabling the mechanisms that keep us from doing so.
What is difficult, what takes the most effort, is turning away from the individuals and the industries that spend trillions of dollars to make us believe that they understand and know beauty better than we do. We know this is the hardest part because even though their constructs of beauty make us hate our bodies, our hair, our age, our color, leading us to the maiming and disfiguring of ourselves by our own hands, and even though their beauty is toxic and killing us, our children and the planet, we find ourselves succumbing to their standards more often than not. We starve and berate ourselves to look more like the images on their Instagram feeds. Instagram. One of the most addictive apps. Are you all big Instagram uh -huh. users? Mm -hmm. So am I. Yeah, that's right. I was talking to an interviewer the other day about Instagram, and she was saying that so many young women are addicted to the Kardashian Instagram feed. Do you know about the Kardashian? Anyway, and then they go and they, and they feel so badly about themselves because they're relating to this feed that they think that they have to go to the meta spa and start you know, carving off parts of themselves so that they can look like this Kardashian image of beauty, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, and then they worry and they wonder why their self-esteem is so low and they wonder and they worry why they aren't happy. We starve and berate ourselves to look more like the images on their Instagram feeds. We coat ourselves in toxic potions to smell less like ourselves and more like scents devised in laboratories to produce outcomes of which we are unaware. Have you ever thought about that? This, the, the, the sense and how much goes into the making of a scent of a deodorant, for instance, and, and how they, the people who are making those scents and paid very you know, well to do it, are, are coding them. They are placing within the, the spectrum of, of smell different prompts for you to act upon, right? That are not the same as the prompts that we have in our natural odor, right? Our natural human odor, which has to do with um, our pheromones and connectivity and relationships. We, and we don't even know what they're coding these other scents to be, right? It's very interesting. We coat ourselves in toxic potions to smell less like ourselves and more like scents devised in laboratories to produce outcomes of which we are unaware. We marvel at skyscrapers more than we revere fruit orchards. We value speed and convenience more than we appreciate depth of inquiry and meaningful life-sustaining labor. We have become fixated on arriving at a destination that we never ourselves consciously chose. And yet we find ourselves on the road, arduous, painful, uninspiring anyway. Interrupting this, refusing that, abandoning all of it, this is our real challenge. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so, where's our little timer? Right oh, I'm really doing, doing quite well. Yeah, y'all. We're going to have lots of time to talk about this. 
How many of you feel beautiful? Oh, come on now. You're, you're breaking my heart. Sometimes. Sometimes. Okay. All right. Sometimes it's good. Once a year? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, we're going to definitely talk about that. Because you are all so beautiful. I don't even have to see you close up to know that. What? Fabulous. You're fabulous. Yes, but you're also beautiful. Oh. You see what they've done to us? How could that? I mean, can you just show your hand? How many of you feel beautiful? Okay, that's better. <laughs> Lovely. You see, when someone just tells you that, it helps. You, you're reminded of your beauty. Yeah? So you need people around you to remind you all the time. <laughs> so those people who aren't reminding you, let them go. <laughs> oh, mm, okay. And so we come to the crux of the matter again, the work we all must do, the work that will upend a culture that privileges the few and rejects the many, the work that will, that must inevitably create a more holistic normal. So do you think that those of you who don't feel beautiful, you, that you don't feel beautiful because you don't look like the images that you see of what beauty is considered to be? Is that what it is? What? It's not just looks, it's right. other things. It's other things. Right. So. Connected beautiful to my children, or it's beautiful to the environment. Or... Uh huh. Mm hmm. So if you don't feel beautiful, though, I really want to know why. Is there one person who does not feel beautiful in here that wants to tell me why they don't feel beautiful? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yes. Yes, the negatives. And what would the negatives be? If only what? Yes. Can everyone hear that? No. Yes. Okay. She, the, the things that, that we lack, you know, when you ask, you know, do you feel beautiful, immediately she was thinking of all of the things that keep her from being beautiful, like cellulite and, and wrinkles and what were the other things? Freckles. Freckles. I mean, how could freckles? I mean, freckles are the show. But I mean, you know, this is, you know, and it's so interesting that you probably don't like your freckles, but someone else loves your freckles. I bet your person, at least one of your people, <laughs> said your freckles are so gorgeous, right? It's so difficult to silence those voices. And, you know, when you, when you, um, when you think about how much money has to be spent to keep us feeling unattractive, you know, to keep us feeling as if we're not beautiful. I mean, can you imagine if, if, you know, if there was many campaigns supporting our individual beauty, all of the range of beauty that, that actually exists, if, if trillions of dollars were spent celebrating that, how different it would be? Now, you know that we must have a deep sense that we are beautiful fundamentally if it takes that much to convince us that we're not. Right? I mean, it takes a tremendous amount for them to destabilize your sense of self. 
So that should be comforting in a way to know that you actually have it in there. It's just being battered constantly, right? And so the work that we must do to interrupt, to refuse, to abandon all of those messages that come in, all of those things that make us so insecure, that make us so um, that weaken us, that make us feel that we are less entitled to be free, that we are less entitled to feel joy, that we are less entitled to have pleasure. Silencing those, the work we must do, the work that will upend a culture that privileges the few and rejects the many, the work that will, that must inevitably create a more holistic normal. At the end of the day, I think it is quite simple, really. I have to go back to you because it's very striking to me. It's, it's so interesting that in, in um, you know, I don't know as much about Australia, obviously, as I know about where I come from. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. I'm studying. I'm trying to understand what's happening here. Um, it's very complex. But your phenotype of, of, you know, you have the blonde, you know, thin, you know, you are, would be considered in, in so many different environments the kind of ideal standard, of, you know, the, 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 the pinnacle of what beauty is. And yet you feel not beautiful, you know. It's, 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 it, this, is, this is the schism, that, that this system of, of qualifying beauty and setting these standards is so arbitrary and it is so debilitating that even the people that it is meant to serve are not served by it. I mean, that is some toxic shit. <laughs> I mean, that is like way, way toxic. And it is, and it is similar to the ways in which we don't understand that patriarchy, that hypercapitalism, that the, that, the, that the whole sort of structure of our world as it has been designed by the ruling class elite, that it is not serving really you know, 99% of us, right? So even, you know, the people whom it is designed to serve, which we would think of as white men, generally, even they are not happy, right? I mean, so you've got men and boys who are being forced to, um, to become men in such a, a really constricted, um, almost sadistic way where they can't express emotion, where they can't express creativity, where they can, you know, they're expected to become soldiers, to become workaholics, to be supporters, you know, all of these things that really diminish and narrow the spectrum of their humanity. You know, you really begin to see that, oh my gosh, well, if this is patriarchy and it's not even serving men and it's putting most of them in this horrible box, I mean, what is going on, right? So that is one of the reasons why I think it's so important um, and, uh, for us to, to think about the Me Too moment as including men, right? Because men, Me Too, are oppressed by these paradigms. Me Too, you know, not just the very courageous men who are coming out and talking about how they've been sexually assaulted and sexually abused, but understanding that, you know, collectively as we look at all the different people who are negatively affected by the, the structures in which we live, we come to understand that no one is really being served. Even the very, very wealthy, the ones who are extracting the resources, including our lives and our energies and our bodies for their own gain, are they, are they happy? Unclear. 
you know? If you need that much power, if you need to do, if you are, in, if you are inured to the pain that you're causing, are you happy? Is this system working for you? I can't imagine that it is. That, because that is a kind of mental illness, isn't it? Right? To be able to compartmentalize the suffering that you're causing. So, at the end of the day, the end of the day, we're not there yet. The end of the day, though, it's quite simple, really, I think. And it's all about changing the channel. We must change the channel. And I really started to think about this when I was talking about the Kardashian Instagram people, whom I adore, and I'm sure are beautiful human beings. Um, but I, I really want to talk to them and just say, just stop looking at that feed that's making you feel like you have to go mutilate yourself and find another feed. And then if we don't, you know, and, and we were talking about this in the context of women being victims of these standards of beauty that are so debilitating. And I thought to myself, you know, if we don't have the basic agency to change the channel and look at another Insta-feed, we are in serious trouble. You know, I mean, if we can't do anything else, we can, we can control what's coming in. So at the end of the day, we must change the channel, we must get off the bus, we must stop looking outward to determine what is beautiful and begin looking inward. All of you who did not raise your hands, begin looking inward. And I don't mean this in an overly simplistic way. Oh my. I'm almost done. Okay. I see I go on the... the, the, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't mean this in an overly simplistic way. I don't mean sitting down on a meditation cushion or doing a series of yoga poses and doing some pranayana breathing, which is wonderful, but that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm suggesting something much more active, more demanding, more rigorous. I'm suggesting that we begin to take note, both viscerally and intellectually, of what makes us feel strong, safe, connected, loved, interested, and inspired. I'm suggesting we use those feelings as our measurement of what is beautiful. I'm suggesting that we look, obviously, beyond skin color when determining physical beauty. Not just that, but beyond shape, size, age. Does that body bring us pleasure? Does that human being encourage us to more fully inhabit our best selves? I am suggesting that when we enter a room, we scan how our body feels for how the space is working on us. In the place beyond words, is the environment calming? Is it restorative? Or is it a stage set for battle and imbalance? I am suggesting that when we truly examine the ideas we hold sacred, we ask ourselves whether those ideas, those thoughts, bring a sense of peace, ease, and compassion, curiosity, and delight, or do they beleaguer us with fatigue and cultivate hopelessness? Do they weaken our spirit and retard our natural tendency toward happiness? Because how we feel is at the heart of resistance. What we look like, not so much. Because what we know to be true is at the heart of resistance. What we have been taught, less so. Knowing and cultivating what we need to survive is at the heart of resistance. Buying the thousands of products that keep the system churning, no matter how irrevocable the devastation, is not at the heart of resistance. Not at all. What I'm saying is that we must look deeper in what we see, at what we see, and if it is to command our energy and resources, it must offer a return greater than our investment. 
I'm saying that we must be, we must refuse to be seduced. We must refuse to be seduced by what is simply presented and eroticize, deify, embrace that which truly brings arousal. Finally, outside my hotel window in my lovely Sydney room, hotel room, stands a naval vessel, a battleship. Its giant body rests atop the blue sea of the harbor with miraculous ease and astonishing grace. I have looked at this ship for three days now and marveled at its construction, its color a calming gray-green that blends imperceptibly with the ocean beneath it, its body steel-smooth, meticulously angled for efficiency, its various towers and radars and mechanisms suggesting ingenuity, skill, competence. I have been especially delighted by the bright red kangaroo placed on its side, an ingenious spot of color, of life, to brighten what could be seen as a rather drab exterior, a surprising injection of the animal world, of nature, that humanizes a hard, unyielding machine. Really, there are so many pleasing elements about this ship. I have grown almost comfortable looking out at it. I can see how its presence might, in time, even feel like a friend, reassuring in its solidity, its promise of protection. And yet, when I look just beneath the surface of this feat of engineering, when I touch into my deep and unspoken feelings about this giant ship of war, I do not feel strong, I do not feel peaceful, I do not feel safe. I feel the opposite of those things. I feel the terror of war. I see the history of conquest. I smell the pollution of the sea. And so, no matter how the lovely plains of its surface, the majesty of its size and grace, I cannot declare this ship beautiful. It frightens me. It makes me feel small and less powerful. There may be a day when a ship like this is employed to protect me, but even then, it signifies that I will need protection. And that is at least one of its main purposes, to normalize potential attack. It is not hard for me to decide. I do not want to dwell with this ship. I do not want to live beside this ship. I do not want to be confused by this ship. I will walk away from it to claim a vivid green hillside, a city block of night-blooming cactus, a dinner with my beloved under the moon. I will go toward what feeds me, or I will not go at all. Will you join me? Oh, right. oh dear. Oh, so much to talk about. <laughs> Sorry, and I didn't leave. You know, I was really pleased and intrigued when you told me that you wanted to talk about beauty as resistance. Yes. Because in many ways, beauty is figured really strongly as something that is about conformity. Mm. Um, in a patriarchy about pleasing men. Mm. And that plays into ideas of femininity, which, she, which are very passive, mm. which are very much, I'm here, I'm, you know, lovely, and look at me and how lovely I am, mm. and doesn't have a huge amount of agency in it. Mm. I think that beauty as applied to women is often about being beheld mm. and not actually doing anything. Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is really reimagining the whole idea of beauty as it applies to women particularly from the ground up yes yes and and from from the inside out you know that that 
the, the nature of beauty as we've known it in this culture is a nature, is a, is a mechanism of objectification. So that we are, we are no longer, um, when we participate in this, we are no longer, um, um, we are no longer allowed to, to express ourselves and understand ourselves from this, this basis of how we feel and, and how we, um, and how we, how we come to know ourselves organically through experience with other people and, and with other things on the planet. You know, it's much more about sort of isolating us, turning us into sort of doll-like beings to be apprehended and manipulated at will, you know, from the, from the outside. So, so this is really a, a turn. We have to reclaim this mechanism of understanding and, and cultivating beauty um, so that, so that what, what they are trying to do is completely irrelevant, really. I mean, it's irrelevant. They let them do it, but don't let it do you, you know. So, so yes, and, and that, does, that does connect with issues of agency um, because it really asks us to engage our own, um, our own will, our own, our own power, our own, you know, again, it's, it's as simple as changing the channel, you know. We, ha we have this ability, our minds have the facility to, to reconfigure the narrative, to rewrite the story. We are always writing a story about who we are. And if we allow, you know, this culture that wants to constantly write a story that we are not good enough, that we are not beautiful enough, that we don't fit, then, then, then we're, we're sunk. We have to write our own stories. And, and so that is where, you know, this, the agency, I think, is... Because what you're talking about is control, really. You know, yeah. I mean, when you think about the way that beauty has been used historically, again, against women primarily, you know, I mean, when you think across cultures with foot binding, with all sorts of ways of, you know interacting with women's bodies, um, with what we prioritise, you know, there is a lot about that that is about keeping women in their place, yes. right? Making sure that they don't transgress, that we don't kind of bust out too much. I mean, you know, the cosmetics industry that you talk about, the cosmetic surgery industry that you talk about, it's all part of an internalising pro process that makes us complicit in our own subjugation, if you like. Yes, and it doesn't only make us complicit, it exhausts us. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, there's something about, you know, I've just gone through, and I'm still working through this, I used to have very big hair, and I dyed it at, for a very long time, and, and the decision to cut off my hair, to stop dyeing it, was so difficult, um, because it, 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 I had to really grapple with being seen differently, categorized differently, and, um, and forced to kind of figure out what was important to me, you know what I mean? So when I finally, you know, at certain points have gone back to thinking, you know, should I die, you know, walk into the... And, and I just can't do it because there's an erasure of my authentic self that I have claimed by making this decision. And, I, and even though I keep thinking, well, I could just go back if I'm so uncomfortable, if it's so much to struggle with, and yet I, I won't because I feel that it would be to succumb to something that um, is, is a real compromising. It is a real messaging to myself that who I am as I am is not beautiful. 
you know? Mm. How about, oh wait, but my point is, I'm so sorry. <laughs> my point is that, that one of the things that I gleaned from this experience is that I spent so much energy dealing with my hair that I, I mean, I know, I don't know, do you all re- relate to this? I mean, yeah. especially I think with curly hair, I don't know, everybody's hair, women. I mean, we just have to spend so much time dealing with our hair and our beauty and our blah, blah, blah. I mean, and once I stopped doing that, it was like I had a whole other lifetime. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then you start to realize that part of this mechanism of having us so energetically drained by our physical appearance and what we need to do to keep it up in order to meet the standard, I mean, imagine what we would be doing with all of that energy if we weren't using it for that. And that's what they don't want us to do. They don't want us to use all of that energy to actually resist, right? And so I really, it was a very uh, intimate experience of, of, of that. It was, right. it was very profound, actually. But at the same time, there's space for us to decorate ourselves hmm. and to, you know, put on clothes we like. And Absolutely. I mean, I think we should, we should all get really into ourselves <laughs> and, like, get sexy for ourselves. I mean, and our partners and our, you know, in the world. I mean, what, I think that's what I'm trying to say is we need to figure out what makes us feel good not what makes us look good, but what makes us feel good. What, when we wear something, when we adorn ourselves, when we smell like we want to... Like, what is that, and why is it making us feel good, you know? Um, I was going to integrate a, a piece from Audre Lorde. Do you know Audre Lorde's work? Some of you? Yes, another great, brilliant woman, uh, feminist, lesbian writer. Um, and she writes... There's a wonderful essay I'd like you to read called... Um, uses of the erotic and she is talking about how the erotic for her is not um, it is the place of pure sensuality and, and, and joy that, that feeds her spirit and that it has often been so silenced in women this, this erotic and it's been pornographized and it's been degraded and it's been sullied and it's been you know and that for her being able to tap into that erotic space was sort of came down to this one sentence, this feels right to me. And she, and she, she has this refrain, you know, this feels right to me. And I think that's something that I want to sort of bring into this discussion of beauty. Like, what feels right to you when you think about what is beautiful and when you look in the mirror and when you put some clothes on and when you adorn yourself and when you walk outside and when you fall in love and when you, you know, all of that. What feels right and sort of retuning ourselves to, to, be, to, be, to be divergent from what we are told should feel right. That's the key. Being, having the critical apparatus to understand when you look at those ads, the L'Oreal ad, whatever it is. You know, when I was in Southeast Asia, the Chinese incursion down south is, is really one of whitening. So, so the women are, are being told to wear these, to do the, the whitening cream and blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's like, does that feel good? You know, how, how do you turn away from that and, and, and understand that you feel that, that there's something about the act of actually putting on a cream that will lighten your skin? that does not feel good, and sitting with that feeling, like this is not right, and then abandoning it, even though all of the social pressures are telling you that you, know, you will be less successful, you will be less attractive, you will be thought of in such a different way. But it doesn't feel right, you know? 
So we are going to be opening up for questions because um, it would be really good to hear what you guys want to know as well. There's going to be microphones downstairs at the bottom of the stairs and then upstairs at the top of the stairs. So if you've got a question, maybe start moving towards the microphone now so, um, so you're there for when the time comes. Um, this has all been really, really good and I think a really important conversation to have and I feel slightly bad that I'm about to bring a bit of a downer into proceedings. That's great. But <laughs> I don't. If it feels right to you, come <laughs> with it. Well, you started thinking about beauty in this context after the 2016 presidential election yes. in which America really did change and shift. What was it about the election of Trump, which I'm assuming you didn't predict... What was it about that moment in your country's history that made you reach for beauty rather than anger or terror or despair? Yes, what a great question. Um, I think it was so unspeakable to have to leave... <laughs> the beauty of the Obama family for me um, and, and, to, and to have to countenance I mean and when I talk about beauty I'm not talking about physical beauty though they are very physically beautiful but I am I mean you know to me mm, complicated but anyway I'm, I'm, I'm talking about you know a kind of integrity a kind of audacity a kind of you know the, the, the determination to um, to, to actually articulate a message and embody a, a way of being that is respectful, that is, un, that is conscious of the planet, and that is conscious of the children. I mean, you know, that is, you know, obviously that is not about grabbing women, right, and building more bombs, right, and deporting people and ripping families apart. I mean, to me, that is the antithesis of beauty. And so we were dealing with the loss of, of, of a compassionate being and, 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 and the replacement with someone who, who seems so just inhumane. And, 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 so, and so, so there was that moment and a real realization that if we slid too far into, if we forgot about this sort of holistic beauty model and we allowed this to become the new norm, the new normative, that we would lose a great thing indeed, you know. And, and so I started to think about that. And then also, um, you know, for us, I don't know how it is for you dealing with him, but for us, it's a daily struggle. Every day that we wake up, we feel, many of us, um, more frightened, more angry, more brokenhearted, more concerned about the direction of our country and the world. And I needed to find a place to go that would be restorative and healing. I needed to, to, to go back to the original um, moments, you know, that I, that I talked about. You know, I needed to remember that when I feel so depleted that actually aesthetic beauty is, is, is what can feed me and make me feel hope again, you know? And when there was a slide, did you see the slide? Well, anyway, did you see any slide of the incredible woman from West Africa? I mean, when you look at that kind of 
you know, beauty, just, you know, you remember that people have been using beauty in, through their cloth, through their paintings, through, you know, women, you know, when, I'm, when I look at, at footage of women in different parts of the world who are, who are facing all kinds of abuses, and you, you know, you, you look at them and they're in a sea of just t total devastation, and yet their, their gorgeous wrappers are clean. You know, it's like, you know, they, they understand they're, they're sparkling clean and they're still beautiful, they're still colorful. They're so, they understand that without that, they're lost. That's what they have. That's what sustains them. And, and it's the same for us, you know, because we are in this battlefield right now and, um, and turning to those, those images, those, that instinct to create and manifest beauty is what I, I needed. I still need if you have any beautiful things you want to share <laughs> with me afterwards. And, and not only physical things, but that generosity of spirit and, and heart and, and the understanding of, 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 of looking generations into the future and, and caring, you know, that is beauty. Excellent. Well, listen, we've got a few people lined up at the microphone, I think. Yeah. Um, if we could start downstairs with microphone number one, please. Hello. Um, so many of our negatives are around our bodies and their flaws. I have loose skin, a big ass that jiggles when I walk. <laughs> it's been noticeable for years and I dress to hide it through insecurity and being pointed out or fear of being laughed at. Now through celebrating my own body and becoming visible, I love to walk confidently and take compliments rather than deflecting them. I would like to preface my question with the fact that I am a burlesque performer and mm. present my body with stretch marks, loose skin, and all on stage, naked in front of audiences, confidently. <laughs> I would like to know how you position something as divisive as the public presentation of the naked female body. Rewind. What was the question again? How would I what? I would like to know yeah. how, how you position something that is so divisive in public mind as the presentation of the naked body. How I position the present... It's interesting with Australians. I, the, the, your phrasing is very different than ours, so I have to kind of figure that out. So how I position the presentation of the naked body... What, I, I, I might, Help me out. I, I don't want to paraphrase yeah, here, but, it, but, but I'll try and translate from the Australian to the American. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, what do you think about nude people in public? Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what do I think about nude people in public? Um, I think that nude people, I think that bodies are, 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 are what we are in. So um, what do I think about nude people in public? I think burlesque is a fascinating um, uh, expression, a creative expression. Um, what do I think about nude bodies in public? You know, I went to see Nakia Louis play the other night. And she had, do you know this play? It's called Black is the New White, and it was very funny and very interesting. And in the first little while, she had a naked white man on stage. 
And he was, you know, there's, there's a lot of vulnerability in nudity. And it was so interesting to me that she had the white man uh, naked, you know, that, and, and that he was then um, sort of inhabiting that most vulnerable space and, and having to feel what that felt like. And I was very supportive of her choice to do that because I think it's very important for, for people to feel what that's like. Um, I don't have a very strong feeling about nudity in public. I would really have to think deeply about that. I think that it's important that people are, are, are able to be, I mean, I think this is a question that has been in the women's movement in America for a long time. You know, I have young women who say, you know, well, I want to wear this, I want, you know, which is like nothing practically outside and, and I should be able to, and I say absolutely you should be able to. Of course, you also have to realize that there are forces against you being able to do that. So um, I think I love the nude body. I mean, I can't think of any objection. Is what would you? What are you looking for? What do you need? Uh, no, like, I what's your love, thought? I love hearing debate about what people think about, like what women think about seeing other women's bodies naked, and how we are kind of taught to judge other women's uh, bodies uh-huh, and therefore uh-huh. judge our own. Uh-huh. I love seeing other women's bodies naked. Like when I go to the spa or, or you know, to the bathhouse or wherever I go. I mean, uh, you know, my partner and I, we, women together with very different body shapes and sizes, the two of us, and we, we just really enjoy looking at the great variety of women's bodies and, and feel, you know, a, a, so much that we wish that all of them could be as worshipped as the few that are. Right, don't judge, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a Thank given. You so You're so welcome. I wish I could have done that more quickly. Um, is there a question upstairs? I don't know if any of you are sitting down waiting to ask a question. Or Okay, let's go to mic number one again. So free from chemical life, like chemical in term. You just seem so organic to me. You're so natural and free from like tabloid infection. So I'm curious whether you were always like that, or whether apart from cutting your hair, um, was there a turning point in your life, or was there um, outside influences? I'm just curious how you became to be so calm. You are milk and honey. Oh, milk and honey. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would say that Buddhism played a big part in, in my life. You know, I've been a Buddhist for 25 years now. And, um, you know, the teachings of, of Buddhism have allowed me to, 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 to return again and again to equanimity and to prioritize and privilege a kind of peaceful mind. Um, at all times. Um, Buddhism helped me to silence a lot of the mental chatter that I think plagues so many of us because it teaches that really the mind is just going on and on doing what it does. That, like, that's, it's, it, you know, and, that, and that ideas and thoughts that you have are just, they don't want to stay in your mind. They just want to go. That's their nature. They want to be liberated. And so I don't, I don't try to, I don't, I don't really rest in that anymore, the sort of pitter-patter of the mind. Or if it is happening, I recognize it as that, and I try to get back to something much more even, you know? Because I, I find that it, it, I'm able to be much more skillful 
in, in, my, in my being with other human beings when my mind is calm. But this is like 25 years in, you know. I was a total wreck 25 years ago. <laughs> I was like really busted. But, but I love it. Thank you so much for that, for that affirmation and that feedback. Yeah. Thanks. Yes, please. I think the role of women in my lifetime has certainly changed for the better. Um, but I'm just wondering how you see the role of women in the future and how you're hoping for the role of women to change and what do you want us to... How are you see the role of women? Like, what are we to do in your eyes? <laughs> I know what I want. And what, what, I do you, think, what do you want? Let's hear like, it. No, I'm more interested in hearing Yeah, you are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're all here to see you. You're like, I'm not going to let you get off that easy. <laughs> that was very funny. Um, um, the role of women in the future. I mean, the role of women in the future is going to be, the, I mean, I think, is going to be the role of women, the role that women have always played. It's going to be... Um, you know, the keepers of, of the culture, the keepers of, um, of, of uh, you know, all that, that is precious and regenerative. I don't want to be essentialist, but, but I think that um, hopefully, you know, we will take all of that, all of our, you know, the Dalai Lama teaches that you, you, you start to learn compassion. You know, mothers are often the most compassionate, you know, just sort of naturally because they, they are, they, they're sort of, they have to be compassionate to care about their, their children, you know, and they have to be selfless in a certain way. And I think that we will take a lot of that, that, that um, the way that we're grounded in, in communalism and relationism and, um, and our concern about our children and our children's children and on and on, and we will take that into positions of, of greater and greater power, and we will then transform the culture so that it looks more like what we want it to look like, right? We want it to look more compassionate. We want it to look more equal. We want it to look more um, uh, whole, you know? There's no mother that wants one of their children to suffer and one to thrive. I don't know that mother. I mean, maybe there are some mothers like that. We Those mothers them. are, they have issues, okay? <laughs> but, but, but for the most part, you know, I don't, I don't know many mothers. I mean, we, we, as a mother myself, I want all of my children, I, I only have one, but I want all of my children to thrive. You know, I want all of your children to thrive. You know, I don't want some of your children to have to work, you know, in a sweatshop and wear a diaper, you know, so that because you don't have bathroom breaks, you know, making clothes for rich people. Like, I, I don't want any children to do that, to grow up to that. I don't want any children to grow up to be like multi-billionaires who are completely cut off from the reality of the world. And I think that is what we will bring, you know, this, this longing for, for, all, for all to thrive. So I think we've got time for one more question. If we could go downstairs, please. Um, hi, Rebecca. Thank hi. you for being here today. Um, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts. I was having a conversation with someone recently, um, a few different women from around the world, and our perspectives were really different on accepting compliments. Uh -huh. And um, kind of the general I gist from most of them was that you should deny when someone gives you a compliment. And so I was saying, when someone gives me a compliment, I just say, oh, thank you, I appreciate it. And they were like, you don't say, no, like, that's definitely not true. And it was kind of interesting because most of them agreed that you have to deny that you see the good about yourself 
even though you want other people to see it. And um, it was just an interesting conversation and I was wondering what your kind of thoughts on that were. Heartbreaking. I mean, you know, when, when, you, when you receive an authentic compliment, when someone, because a compliment is really just someone seeing something in you that, is, that, that resonates with them, and, and to push that away is to deny yourself not just the endorphins, the, the pleasure endorphins that you get from that sort of reciprocal recognition, but, but, to, but to really want to live in a space in which you do not hold what is being told to you as a truth. You know, so I think that's very sad. Now, if it's an, if it's an insincere compliment, I mean, we're, we're, there's a differentiation between a compliment, which is organic, authentic, not, debil- you know, not demoralizing, not degrading, not all of that, but a real compliment, you know, like the woman who got up and said that I, I'm like milk and honey. You know, how, how, would I, how would I be, you know? All right, I mean, there you go. Yes, thank you. I mean, that's a beautiful compliment, and it, and it feeds my spirit and my sense of all that I, have, that I have done to work on myself. And you need that kind of feedback to, to hold it because working to, to be free in this culture is so hard. And so when anyone tells you that they see what you've done, you know, and who you are, you know, to me that is a moment to cherish and to celebrate. Um, so I want, I hope, you know, you are so lovely you know, and thank you so much for bringing that question. Thank you, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, you're so welcome. Yeah. Well, um, Rebecca Walker, that was a very beautiful talk. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I hope that we all leave today being able to find that bit more beauty in ourselves, in our worlds, in our lives, um, in our futures. Thank you so much for joining us here, and thank I you. Enjoy the rest of the session. You've been listening to Rebecca Walker on Beauty as Resistance. She was speaking with me at All About Women in 2018. And we'll be back next week with more from the festival, so make sure you subscribe. Ideas at the House is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and in most good podcast apps. I'll see you next time.